this is the World of Work podcast with James and Jane. Hi, this is James. I wanted to let you know that as well as these podcasts, we deliver at least one free online seminar every month that you're welcome to attend wherever you are in the world. You can learn more about them and register for them via our website, www.worldofwork.io. That's www.worldofwork.io. Hello and welcome to another episode of World Work Podcast. We are here today having a conversation about ACT, about acceptance and commitment therapy. It's uh, something we've been thinking about a little bit and wanted to dive in and learn more about it. And we're lucky enough to be joined by an old friend, Chris Westcott, who um, I actually met in 2016, I think, many years ago, who is focusing a little bit on this area now. Chris, would you be able to introduce yourself and say hi and let people know a little bit more about yourself and your background and what you're doing at the minute? Yeah, sure. Hi, James. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. I am I'm an experimental psychologist, and I'm particularly interested and focused on performance psychology. So summing that up, I guess, the catchphrase I stole from someone, I'm sure, is helping people do what matters when it matters. So when we work with all sorts of people, work with teams, organizations, we work with people who are professionals in corporates, we work with people who work in the public sector. We work with sports people. We work with the medical profession. And we also work with people in the arts as well. Dancers, for some reason. We've got involved with them quite a lot recently. And musicians. Brilliant. That's a great blend. And I actually came across ACT, or when I first started looking into it a little bit more, I saw a lot of reference in the sports domain. I thought it was really interesting, some of the things in relation to sports. Before we get really into the details, could we start at the top level? And could you just explain a little bit what ACT is, what acceptance and commitment therapy is? Yeah, so we pronounce it ACT, and it stands for acceptance and commitment therapy if you're working with clinical populations. If you're working with non-clinical populations, like we are, um, the D will substitute therapy for training. So acceptance and commitment training. To boil it down, it's a humanistic and solution-focused form of behavioral therapy or behavioral training. Um, It's dualistic in its approach, meaning that it both looks to decrease people's vulnerability to psychopathologies, so mental disorders. And the other side of that is kind of, there's a focus on developing strategies to help people flourish. Okay, so it's quite sort of Modern as an approach, I think. Is that right? I mean, I've heard people talk about different histories of psychology with different... Yeah, 2006, this kind of emerged, I suppose, is a way to describe it. A guy called Stephen Hayes, mm-hmm. a doctor and a psychologist in the US. Just a brief kind of context, we had the first wave of behavioral therapies, which were traditional or radical behaviorism. You know, operant conditioning, Skinner in his box, basically press a button, get a piece of candy as a reward. We can alter your behavior by doing that. You do something good, we congratulate you if we encourage you. You do something bad, you used to get a rap on the knuckles or a scolding or, or whatever it was. From there, we had cognitive therapy, the second wave of behavioral therapies. So guys like um, Ellison Beck kind of thought, hold on, it's probably quite important to take account of how people think rather than how they behave. And their approach was changing problem behaviors or problematic behaviors by trying to change people's thoughts. From there, we get a third wave, which is kind of acceptance and mindfulness-based therapies. We're more interested in the context and the processes of thought rather than in the content of thought. 
So we're not seeking to change the content of thought. We're looking to change how we respond to thoughts. Yeah, interesting. I think CBT is something that's in the mainstream or close to the mainstream in terms of people's understanding of it. Why do you think we made the step away from that? Why did we start to, or not step away, why did we build on that, I guess, with CBT as an approach? It's just um, an evolution. Mm -hmm. So we're seeing, trying to restructure people's thoughts. Basically, the proof point there, if we could restructure our thoughts, the content of our thoughts, we'd have all thought ourselves deliriously happy. There'd be no mental disorders. None of us had any psychopathology and mental health service wouldn't be swamped with people in need. So basically, these control strategies are effective. They're effective in some populations sometimes, but in the broader population, not that effective. In fact, worse than that, they can be counterproductive. So I guess my understanding of that second wave is that as you've alluded, we can become aware of the thoughts that we're having and the feelings that we're having, and we can strive to intentionally change those so that we can create better outcomes for ourselves and others. And my understanding is that you're saying ACT is more about, I guess, accepting of those thoughts and feelings and recognizing that that's part of humanity and navigating forward through the challenges we face, despite or regardless of the thoughts that we have. Is that? Absolutely. You've nailed it. So useful contrast is control-based strategies versus acceptance strategies. The third wave of which ACT is part of, acceptance strategies. So rather than struggling against these thoughts, when I feel anxious, if I struggle against the anxiety, I end up feeling more anxious. I get anxiety about my anxiety and then I'll get scared about my anxiety and so on and so on. And we just get this loop, a feedback loop, and it gets worse and worse and worse. And in parallel with that, while I'm focusing on trying to control these uncontrollable thoughts, my attention and focus is not on what's in front of me and what matters and what I should be doing. So the example, you know, you, you need to give a speech to a bunch of people or a presentation. I get some anxiety around that, perfectly normal. If I'm trying to control that, I'm fully focusing on trying to get rid of my anxiety, which is an impossible task. But while I'm doing that, I'm not focused on my presentation. I'm not focused on what's in front of me. Being in the present moment, we might um, call that. Um, I'm living the past or future. My focus is not on what's important to me in that moment. Yeah, so it sounds like we can be both distracted and using some of our cognitive ability or focus and be distracted by something that might not be effective anyway. When you were speaking about it, it reminded me of a, a phrase that I heard or a little story that I heard to do with Taoism a while ago. It was a little story, I can't remember where it was or who said it, but a metaphor of stone in a river. And the story was that the stone that's in the river that is stuck halfway in the bottom of a river poking out is the one that's trying to hold back the river and that's the one that gets worn down and eroded. Yeah, okay. And the stone that is not and goes with the flow of the river effectively remains whole, but navigates to new places. And look, there's another metaphor is um, tree. You can bend with the breeze. Mm. You can try and resist it and stay solid and potentially get uprooted. Yeah, okay. I'm going to build on that. There's a phrase that I've read and seen a fair amount when we're talking about ACT and that's psychological flexibility, which really seems to fit into that tree metaphor. Could you just sort of bring that phrase in? And You know, psychological flexibility is your ability for mindful values-guided behavior despite what internal thoughts, feelings, emotions you're having. So it's your ability to do what matters to you despite how uncomfortable you might feel. So going back to my example before of giving a talk, maybe you're giving a speech at a 
at a wedding or something like that, or just a presentation to work colleagues. It's normal to feel anxious, a bit scared about that, a bit apprehensive. But instead of trying to control those thoughts, one way of controlling them, which might be, I'm not going to do the speech, that's really effective at getting rid of those thoughts short term. But long term, I haven't acted in accordance to what I value, which might be giving a presentation to educate people, might be to amuse people at a wedding if I'm giving a best man talk or something like that. So psychological flexibility is your ability to be like the tree, bend with the wind, the wind's the uncomfortable thoughts, and do what matters to you. Yeah, nice. That's a, a lovely metaphor for this, that tree flexing and bending in the winds around us, but staying true to where it is, and I guess having its roots connected to what matters. Yeah, and look, the acceptance part of that isn't meekly accepting. Yeah. It's accepting that these are part of living. I say to clients all the time, welcome to life. This is what happens. There is a base level of suffering there, regardless of who you are. We work with all sorts of people who are, in financial terms, doing exceptionally well. People sold up out of big startups, people on ex-cos of big corporates and FTSE. And looking at their bank balance, they're doing exceptionally well, but they still have a level of suffering. Their Rolls Royce will still get dinged in the car park if they ever go shopping or maybe at the golf club or wherever it is, their family members are going to die, their kids are going to get bullied at school, they're going to feel fat, they're not going to exercise, they're not going to eat well. All these things are part and parcel of life. Really human. You can try and struggle against these feelings that come with this condition of living, but you're in a hiding to nothing. Another good metaphor is, you know, it's like trying to keep a beach ball or a football underwater. Me struggling to control my thoughts and feelings I can keep that beach ball underwater as long as I'm concentrating fully on it. But if you're on the side of the pool, give me a shout and go, Chris, how about got a couple of margaritas here? Let's get some downers or let's go have a game of beach volleyball or whatever it is or go for a walk. As soon as I take my attention off holding that beach ball underwater, it it doesn't just pop to the surface, it pops out higher. Yeah. And I guess we're not ready to deal with it because we've been so focused on suppressing it that when it changes into something present in front of us, we're not ready to behave in the way that we'd like with that being such a present part of what we do. And look, as children, you've got a a boy yourself and I've got a niece and I've never, until this happened to me, I didn't realise, after doing a bit of reading around it as well, how conditioned we are at a young age to suppress, boy, distract ourselves from difficult feelings. And it's done by our parents. And it's not anything malevolent. Mm. It's just like a kind of social conditioning. Yeah. So when we're brought up, we fall over, we scuff our knee. You'll be all right. Learning to ride your bike. You have a fair few stacks. I'll get up, you'll be fine. Crack on, don't worry about it. Yeah. And then by the time we're, we're older, we're really good at suppressing these difficult thoughts. It's a tough question. I don't know if you've got a thought on this. A lot of the things that we're speaking about sort of resonate to me with some of those more conceptually considered sort of Eastern philosophy things to do with acceptance and zenness and just being. Do you get any sense of this cultural view on that? Yeah, there is definitely some crossovers. The third wave that mindfulness is at the core of them. It's a term now that's been kind of hijacked quite a lot and co-opted by various people in, in different sectors. But where ACT is definitely not religious, it's lots of people equate mindfulness to a relaxation, a spiritual kind of vent or a spiritual experience. Act, mindfulness in, in ACT through the ACT lens is not that. It's being in the present moment with your attention fully engaged 
in what's in front of you. It's not zenning out. It's not distracting yourself or relaxing to get away from our internal experiences. It's fully accepting them. And like I said before, not meekly accepting them, accepting that this is part of life. We've got, depending on the literature you look at, we have twenty to 60,000 cognitive events or internal experiences, thoughts, feelings, emotions every day. We absolutely cannot control them. So our best strategy is to accept they're going to sit there within us and be able to flexibly move our attention to what matters in the moment. It's not to say that they're never useful, but it's to identify when they are helpful or not helpful. Keep focusing on them if they're helpful in that moment. But if they're not, you can move your attention elsewhere. Yeah. And I'm going to come on in a minute to ask some questions about how we actually do that, what some of the, the processes and activities we might be able to do are. But before, could you talk to me a little bit about the, I guess, effectiveness or efficacy of ACT versus CBT or in its own right? Or does it work better for some people than others? Or how does this? Yeah, look, ACT is probably it's a subset of CBT. Mm. It's kind of a, and ACT isn't just the only form, newer form of CBT. There's compassion-focused therapies, there's... MBCT, there's dialectical behavior therapies, all different flavors that have a real focus on acceptance and mindfulness rather than the control agenda. And in terms of efficacy, I think going to Google Scholar, there's upwards of 30,000 pieces of research on the efficacy of app. So it's CBT, kind of the old school second wave, I guess, of CBT, purely because it's been in existence longer. There's probably a bit more research on that but certainly ACT is growing and its effectiveness is well documented in clinical and non-clinical populations from sports people to people suffering from OCD, PTSD, clinical anxiety disorders. So basically if you're in Google Scholar and you are interested in your academic if you put in ACT hyphen any condition it will bring up research papers on that so there's even act for insomnia i was working with someone with act dash cp which is for chronic pain there's a lot of work being done at the university of queensland on that area as well so it is a thriving research base that's nice that's good to hear it's good to hear of a range of areas that it's being explored with it it feels like it's useful for many people. We've talked a little bit about that sort of reduction of suffering being a bit of a theme. And I guess sort of reflecting on it, do you see ACT as something that takes us from maybe a lower level of satisfactory level? Or is it something that can take us, if things are generally pretty good, can it enhance and make things even better for us, if that makes sense? I'm not sure of the right language around that, but is it the sort of getting rid of negativity or does it bring in positive? How do you see that? Yeah, I mean, looking like to hark back to what we've just been talking about, control strategies kind of label thinking thoughts and emotions as negative or positive act is context-based we're not interested in the content of thoughts we're interested in the context and function of those thoughts so instead of labeling thoughts as negative or positive we'll perhaps label them as helpful or unhelpful depending on the context so the example i use is you ring me up to go go to the pub and have a few beers now depending on my context that can be helpful or unhelpful, that behavior of me going to the pub. If I'm a recovering alcoholic, in that context, the function of me going to the pub to have a few beers with you, not helpful. However, if I'm suffering from social anxiety and I'm reestablish some friendships and get out and meet a few more people because I'm caught indoors and I'm lonely, then going out to meet you for a few beers, really helpful. So that in ACT terminology, we describe that as a workability of the behavior. 
So we look at the workability rather than whether something is objectively positive or negative, be that thoughts or be that in behaviors we can see. Let's dive in a little bit deeper, if that's all right. So, so we've talked about what ACT is. We've talked about some of its background, some of its effectiveness, some of the people that benefit from this. And we've anchored in on this idea of psychological flexibility and shared some nice sort of imagery to help us think about that. I'd like to explore a little bit now how we actually do this, right? We know we want to be psychologically flexible. I guess are the building blocks of psychological flexibility. Is there anything you can talk to? So we've got three ACT prices that, that can be kind of bundled into rather than the six kind of dry overly academic ones. First of those is opening up. Basically, that means embracing situation, normalizing our internal experiences. So what we talked about before, those feelings of anxiety that pop up perhaps around a presentation or some kind of life event, fear of doing something new, normalize them. So open up is the first leg of the act triflex. Second one's being present. Basically means focusing our attention on what matters. We're not caught in the future. We're not ruminating on the past. And third leg of ACT is engaging or taking action, doing what matters. So we talk about ACT as being solution-focused. It's we don't just deal with our clients, uh, tell them about the theory of ACT. We work on what they can actually do. That will make a difference. It will move the dial. So, you know, that's maybe connecting their values, setting goals, things like that. So there's three aspects. Yeah, so let's prod them a little bit more, if that's all right. So with opening up, right, we talked about embracing situations, normalizing emotions, normalizing all of that. How do we go about that for people who've maybe not thought about this stuff? How do you help people get to a stage of recognizing? And Yeah, so maybe in contrast with what we all do normally. Mm. Yeah, difficult emotion arises. Um, what example? You Give me an example of some difficult situation. Yeah, let's carry on with a wedding speech, right? We've got to get up in front of 200 people and chat. What comes up around there? Thoughts of nervous, anxious, I guess a bit scared. What are people going to think about me? Old school approaches, old school CBT approaches would look focused on controlling those thoughts, perhaps attaining some kind of ideal performance state. We see sports people all the time with their rituals and their superstitions, distraction techniques, try and take your mind off these difficult thoughts. We've seen the evidence shows this is not effective. That's the struggling to keep the beach ball underwater. So what we do instead is normalize that anxiety. And one way we might do that is by noticing and naming those thoughts. What thoughts am I having here? Okay, yeah, I feel a little bit anxious. Okay, yeah, I'm noticing how I'm having the sensation here of like sweaty palms. So, okay, yep, yeah, noticing that. What else? Oh, I'm noticing a bit worried. I've got the father-in-law sitting in the, the top table here. Oh, God, he's not going to find me funny. I'm a bit worried about that. Okay. And through the process of doing that, we get a bit of space from those difficult thoughts and emotions. They're normalized. We worry about that stuff because we care. If we didn't care, it wouldn't matter. It wouldn't be a problem. So we get a bit of distance from that. The distance from those difficult thoughts allows us to choose how to behave. Our previous behavior might have been to run a mile. It might have been to have like a, a swift seven pints before you got up to ease the nerves, to try and control the nerves. Not that effective. I've tried that one myself as a best man, entirely ineffective. So yeah, that's looking at the opening up side of things. That's one of the exercises we might do. It's quite hard to do in a quick, digestible way in a podcast, but process might take, we might do a couple of sweeps of a couple of different exercises and take 10 to 15 minutes just working through it. 
And one of the cornerstones of ACT is we're not looking for our clients to become dependent on us, looking to give them the tools so they can go off and do the work outside of our sessions to get them to a level where they can do it themselves without us. So it's akin to psychological flexibility is parallel with physical training or physical flexibility. If I'm a PT, I can show you how to do deadlift or bicep curls, whatever it is, while we've got you in session. But unless you go to the gym and get the reps in, you're not going to see the benefit. Exactly the same with that. We teach people exercises, they go away, practice, we work on it, we tweak it, get them to a stage where they can manage themselves. That's nice. So thinking through on some of that, it feels a little bit to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, as if part of this opening up phrase about normalizing the the thoughts and emotions we have is to be able to, as you said, to name them, to see them as something that's happening and almost to give us a bit of space. So we're not a slave to them. We're not on a sort of automatic response, but we can see them. We just need to buy just a fraction of time or a fraction of capacity by doing that so that we can be a little bit more intentional about what we do. Exactly. Yeah. Look, they talk about it in actor, a really good image is talking about getting hooked by thoughts. Okay. So when you imagine where you kind of with fish, we're swimming along through the river of life, whatever it is. There's a whole bunch of fishing hooks hanging down there, those difficult thoughts and feelings. Now, when we've bitten on that hook, it's hooked us. Someone, some greater being or whatever is on the other end of that fishing hook and it's just reeling us in. We've got no autonomy. It pulls us about, but we're faced with a choice. We can either not bite on it in the first place Or, as we all do, we slip, we get hooked, we get caught up in our feelings or emotions or memories. When we're caught up with them, they jerk us around all over the place. The exercises we teach and work on is enabling clients to recognize when they have been hooked, to release that hook, and to refocus on what's more important. Keep Keep swimming on. We can't get rid of the hooks. There's no delete button. We've got all these thoughts and feelings, you know, the 20 to 60,000 a day or whatever it is. It's like a fire hose. We can't turn them off. We can't delete them. So that river we're swimming through, there's all these difficult thoughts and feelings as hooks. Hopefully we don't bite on them. But if we do, we've got some exercises that can increase the likelihood of you being able to unhook. And when you unhook, you can then flexibly move your attention to what matters and go on with doing the things that move the dial in your life. Things that give you the satisfaction, the fulfillment, vitality, all those good things. And when you were speaking, I was thinking of a, another sort of image. Do you remember those like finger trap puzzles? Do you remember those things? Like you pull oh, your finger. Finger trap, is it? Yeah, you put yeah. your finger in, and if you like, if you try and pull your finger out, it gets yeah. trapped. Like quicksand. Exactly. Yeah. The more you struggle, the worse it gets. Exactly. That type of thing. So they talk about in acting literature. They talk about a guy called Russ Harris, who's one of the he's a psychotherapist, um, ex GP. Um, he's based in Australia. He's a British guy from Liverpool. He talks about flicking the struggle switch i can choose to struggle against this that's fighting against the fishing hook jerking me around everywhere i can try and control it and struggle against it it's just not going to work so we talk about flicking the struggle switch off dropping the struggle yeah so if we do if we sort of recognize what's going on recognize that we've been hooked or mm-hmm. or whatever that is and we acknowledge we've got all these emotions in these moments and that fighting mm-hmm. against them isn't helpful yep. and what we want to do then is we want to sort of do something that is helpful in that moment exactly. how do we know what's helpful for us how do we work out like what's a helpful guide rails or guidelines or decision making yeah. support so a useful way of doing that is identifying your values which is one of the cornerstones of act now 
Valleys, again, a term that's been co-opted. We don't have to go very far at all to look <laughs> to see our company from the largest corporate to the smallest one-man band that has their values prominently plastered somewhere. What we mean in ACT by values is a way of being. So I'll just break that down a bit. It's not things that we value, clean air, a nice house, shelter, maybe a fancy car for some people, holidays. That isn't what we mean by values. What we mean by values is a way of being. How we want to treat others, how we want to be treated ourselves, how we want to treat the wider world. What really matters to you in your life? A good way is to look counterfactual of that. When we're leading a, a life that's kind of filling our values with being how we want to be, acting how we want to act, treating others how we want to treat others, we feel satisfied. We have a sense of vitality. We Life's interesting. It's a bit more exciting. There's a bit of meaning there. Contrast that with the opposite. A life that isn't guided by values-based behavior. A bit empty. Sense of dissatisfaction. Perhaps a bit of regret there. Might be a bit dull. Lack of vitality. A phrase we hear quite often is people feel like they're going through the motions. And that's when your day-to-day consists of actions that aren't guided by values or congruent with your values. You're not doing those things that really float your boat. So examples might be me, my values. One of them is being compassionate. Another one is being skillful. So for me, during my day, being compassionate, I'm in my work, I'm dealing with clients all day, showing a bit of empathy towards them. Doing that makes me feel really good. Another thing I have is being skillful. So my sports or hobbies that I practice, a lot of them are skill-based. I'll go out today, it's here, it's blowing 30 knots, it's horrible, it's raining. I'll go in the sea and have a surf because I want to raise my skill level on that. And I've been doing that for 40 years because it really floats my boat, increasing my skill at something. Another one of my values is curiosity. On a day-to-day basis, I'll do a bit of research. I'll ask people about their lives. I'll go and investigate things. I'll go down a, a Wikipedia hole, a YouTube hole, to satisfy my curiosity about something. And we find the research shows we sprinkle those values kind of throughout your day. It gives your life a greater sense of purpose and meaning. So I guess there are things we can do to uncover, explore, identify our values. But assuming that we've identified a handful of these, I don't know, six of them, five of them, eight of them, whatever it is. How does being clear on those values help us in those moments where we've managed to shake off the confines of feeling our values are unhelpful and got us that breathing space, turned off that struggle switch? How does knowing our values help us in that moment? Yeah. So I'll actually just give a really quick example of in case someone doesn't know oh, yeah, identify their values. There's online tools you can use, but like a really good way is just imagine somehow you've managed to end up at your own funeral. Your values, a good indication of your values is what you'd love to hear people saying at your eulogy. Oh yeah, James, he he had a beautiful house, great big car, he was really funny, or he was relentlessly curious, he was compassionate. I always knew he was at the end of the phone if I needed him. He gave some great contributions to his his, uh, professional field, whatever it is. Those things that people say in eulogy are a really good indication of your values. And yet they're adjectives. So being something, being that X, that something is a good indication of your values. I really enjoy being whatever it is. So what I was asking was, how does knowing our values help us? In those moments where we're, you know, shaking off the unhelpful struggle against our emotions, where we've turned that struggle switch, we've got that bit of acceptance, we've bought that little bit of breathing space. How does in that moment knowing our values help us? What can we do with that? Yeah, so what's helpful is maybe I'll use, throw another metaphor in here. 
doing things that matter to us is easy. So the example I'll give, I want you to imagine yourself here, you're playing playing football with your son or another child in the garden. The ball runs out onto the road, cars hammering on the road, it's going to hit that ball. What do you do? You stop charge, you let the car hit the ball, doesn't matter. Second scenario, football, playing with the, the child in the garden, football runs in front of the car, same car hammering along, child runs out to grab the ball. What do you do then? Then you grab the child. You run out there, you grab the child regardless. Why? Because it matters, he or she matters, the football doesn't matter. So it's really, really easy to do those things that matter to us. So by identifying our values and what matters to us, following a course of action that's satisfying becomes easier. It's appetitive in psychological terms. We want to do more of it. Right, okay, yeah, yeah, and feeds our appetite. That's helpful. I think one of the things that's popped into my mind as you've been explaining that is I think my sense is that sometimes when we can have these values and they're there and they're sort of burnt into our way of thinking in these different moments, they're like almost decision-making shortcuts. Like you said, they're the things that we know we want to do. If we preload our decision-making faculties with a series of values that are kind of hardwired in there, then in a moment of uncertainty or a moment of decision-making under stress or a moment of taking action under stress, we have these front-loaded shortcuts to guide or boundary our actions. Does that kind of make any sense? Yes, you're 100% right. I couldn't have put it better myself. So the way we might talk about that in ACT is our values are a compass. I'm walking along through the bush, wherever it is, feeling a little bit lost or confused in terms of what action I should take. Pull my compass out. Okay, what can I do here? Our values are our north or west or east or whatever it is. Okay, I've wandered a bit off track here. Got my compass out. Okay, there's my value of being loving, compassionate, hardworking, curious, skillful, adding value, being altruistic, whatever it is. Okay, what can I do in this moment? That's a move towards one of those values. And getting towards our values, we can use goals. So keeping the compass analogy going, goals might be waypoints. And that's the difference between goals and values, which a lot of people kind of in the non-act world get caught up in. Goals are finite. We can take them off. Values, you never stop living them until you die. Yeah. And that sort of feels more Eastern in heritage of thinking to me than Western in some ways as well. I don't know if it is, but my sort of lay conception of some of those ideas. Yeah, it could well be. And look, jumping back to the analogy of the compass in North or East or West, mm. we're walking West, we never finish. We never get yeah. West. We never yeah. finish. So, it's a way of being. Yeah, a contrast of want to get married is a goal ticked off or not i want to be a loving partner wife or husband or whatever it is or civil partner never finished yeah i can keep being loving for as long as i'm alive yeah you used the phrase earlier that was quite nice just introducing this you said a move towards our values i like that idea of a move towards for me in that phrase move there's something intentional something action-based in us taking a move towards something and it feels like we're moving towards something that maybe leaves us feeling proud of who we are later on that we're taking an act in that moment that who we want to be you know moving towards our values is inherently satisfying it's inherently satisfying music because it feels good to do stuff that matters to you yeah i've heard some things elsewhere about something like narrative identity therapy and the importance of the stories that we tell ourselves about the types of people we are and how we behave in different moments. I've listened to we're talking about that being referenced in, in areas like substance abuse and other areas where the stories we tell ourselves shape how we behave in moments or can. And by sort of influencing those, we can ultimately change some of our behaviours for better outcomes. Do you see any overlap between that type of thinking? and? What yeah, I mean, we base that as a, a control strategy. We're looking to perhaps change that narrative 
In ACT, we're not interested in the content of the thoughts. We're looking at the functional context of them, how they function. What is that thought? How do we behave in response to that thought? We realize we can't change that narrative. Those thoughts, feelings, emotions, memories, whatever, no control over. So those narratives, we don't have a control over. I can't go back and change my narrative, my self-concept. What I can absolutely do is choose how to respond to it, use my behavior. And if I have get a little bit of space, a little bit of distance from that, I can choose how to respond to it. So in terms of substance abuse, it might be I'm not a a, a clinical psychologist or a counseling psychologist, but I imagine it might be the stories popping up in my head are I'm useless, I'm never going to amount to anything, it's you know, doing anything else is a waste of time. I'm going to may as well light up that crack pipe. In response to those thoughts, a move away from my values might be reaching for the crack pipe. But having gone through and been familiar with ACT, our approach might be, or would be, okay, that's my I'm not good enough story coming up. Those thoughts I can't control, they're there. I feel like a loser. I feel useless. Life's a waste of time. Okay, thanks, brain. Thanks for those thoughts. I can still behave how I choose. See, that's constrained by your circumstances. But fundamentally, I can choose, again, if there's no physiological dependencies, I can choose whether to have the extra beer, to slap my partner, hit my children, not do my homework, ignore my co-worker. I can choose how to behave despite what feelings are coming up. Yeah, it seems that we can't change that past story. The past story is what it is. It's what's got us here. We, Chris and I both worked in finance at various points. In some places, past performance is no guarantee of future results, right? Yeah, exactly. What's gone before doesn't need to influence the future. Yeah, and look, in finance, you're surrounded by people, as one of them myself, only as good as you last quarter. And the narrative attached to you by yourself and by others is your last quarterly performance, depending on your front office or not. And it's easy to get hung up on that. And to act to in response to whatever narrative we've got running through our head, rather than act in a way that's our values and gives us satisfaction or meaning or vitality or makes us feel good. Okay, cool. So if people wanted to actually do a little bit of this themselves and, and start to use some of these processes, what would you recommend they do to bring act to life for themselves? There's only a few fundamental processes there, but they're all experiential. So me kind of explaining it on a podcast is a bit like me explaining how to swim or how to play guitar. It's not quite the same, but you mentioned it there, cognitive diffusion or unhooking difficult thoughts, a way you can practice that throughout the course of your day. Whenever difficult thoughts or feelings arise, you're in a difficult situation, take a second to notice and name those thoughts. Okay, notice... I'm having the thought that X. I notice I'm having the feeling that Y. And it's difficult. So going back to the parallels with uh, physical training, the more you practice it, the easier you get it. Because through our life, we've got really practiced at reacting to thoughts by trying to suppress them if they're difficult. It's not that effective, but it doesn't stop us trying. So the more you practice recognizing, noticing and naming them, a little bit of space you can get between them allows you to choose how you act in response to it, either move towards or away from your values. So to do that sort of practicing, what do you recommend people do to, to try it? Do they just sit for a minute and think? I mean, what do I do? This is easy as. I give the example of walking on the beach with a, with a significant other or having a walk, discussing some kind of household thing that has or hasn't happened. It's caused some problems. Oh, those thoughts that come up. If only you'd done this, why didn't you do that? Told you, blah, 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 whatever. 
Our immediate response to those in the past might have been to blow up and say them out loud, have the argument. Instead of doing that, take a second, identify the thoughts you're having, and then choose how to respond. That's in line with your value. So the evidence shows that practicing that for three times a day, between 30 and 60 seconds, has a noticeable effect. Yeah. And like you said, it's it's like physical exercise. You've got to keep practicing and do those reps and do your 60 to 90 second yeah, let's link it to another example of doing exercise itself. Oh, yeah, great. You know how it is yourself. You've come home from work, whatever. It's, I know you're in Edinburgh, the weather, although it's fantastic, obviously, most of the time. Sometimes it's not great. You come home from work, the plan is to go out for a run. It's chucking it down. You have those difficult thoughts come up. Oh, can't be bothered. What's the point? I missed my run the other day. I'm never going to run a sub three marathon, whatever. All these difficult thoughts come up. Now, by noticing, naming them, identifying them, diffusing, unhooking from them, you get a bit of space. Okay, one of my values is self-care. I want to look after myself here, physically, mentally. To live in line with that value, what could I do? I want to sit on the couch. That might be my away move. Flick on the TV, order a pizza, jump in the bath with a hamburger, whatever it is. Might be my away moves. Self-care, okay. You know, my physical health's important to me. Okay, I'm going to act in line with values. I'm getting out there. I'm smashing out a five or ten or whatever it is. And having done that, you know how you feel yourself. Feel proud. Yeah, satisfying. You might be covered in road grime and your toes are about to drop off. But it feels good. It's satisfying because you've done something that matters to you. That's the equivalent to jumping out there and getting your kid out of the way of the car and maybe getting your leg broken. Doesn't matter. Feels great because you've done something that matters. Brilliant. All right. Well, I think I'm going to wrap us up in the interest of time. We've covered a huge amount there from the introduction to ACT to exploring some of its genesis, to reflecting on its effectiveness, to thinking about the building block, some of the ways we can use it in practice, some of the people that it can help. So that's super helpful. Just before we go, how can people learn a little bit more about you and what you do? Yeah, best way, just have a look at the website, mersol.co, M-E-R-S-O-L.co. I would encourage people to explore a little bit further. A lot of resources out there in terms of books, one by Dr. Russ Harris called The Happiness Trap. That's more non-psychologist focused. My business partner absolutely loves it and got a lot out of it, even though she's a psychologist as well. If you're looking for something a bit kind of more educational, my favorite textbook is, again, by Russ Harris. It's called Act Made Simple. Great introduction. And also The Dummy's Guide to Act, written by two, I think, really good clinical psychologists, and they break it down quite nicely as well. Brilliant. There's some wonderful recommendations in there. I love the idea of Dummy's Guide to Act. What a wonderful thing to have. Yeah. Brilliant. Um, Fabulous. Okay, well, thank you very much. It's just time to say goodbye. So it's goodbye for me. Great. Thanks for your time, James. Thanks for listening to this episode. Don't forget, as well as these podcasts, we deliver at least one free online seminar every month that everyone can attend. You can sign up for these and our newsletter, The Wow Mail, on our website, www.worldofwork.io. That's www.worldofwork.io.